The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless our time in the word together this morning. Pray that you would grant us grace to be content even now in our hearing. And I pray that we would hear and we would receive your word eagerly. I pray that you would exalt your son in the preaching of your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So one week ago, we heard Paul's last exhortations to the church at Philippi. The apostle commanded them to think on whatever things are true, whatever is noble, whatever is just and pure and lovely, things that are of good report, whatever is virtuous and praiseworthy. The church was to meditate on these things in anything of virtue or excellence. The church in an ugly and dark time in the world, in an ugly and dark time for them personally in their situation, was to think on things that are beautiful. They were to think on righteousness and peace and joy. They were to strive to attain virtue as they meditated on it. Paul wanted them not only to meditate on these things, but whatever they learned and saw and heard from him, those things they were to do. They were to imitate those virtues that they saw in Paul in his living. Paul was a man of thinking and learning, and Paul was a man of action. The church at Philippi was to be the same, well-versed in knowledge of virtue and well-versed in living virtuously. In a time of darkness and night, they were not to be of the night, but were to live and herald the dawning of the day of the Lord. Christ has come, and the darkness trembles, and believers need not fear. They were to think on Christ in heaven and live a heavenly manner of life. And the God of peace would be with them. The promise of God himself in Christ and through Christ is to spur them on to virtue, to not be anxious about anything, but instead with their eternity and their future secure, they're to dwell on the things of God and thereby no peace. And now as Paul has concluded his commands to the church in light of this cross and gospel of peace, he now goes on to comment on the occasion for which he's writing this letter. So he wrote this letter of Philippians in response to a gift that was delivered to him by Epaphroditus from the church in Philippi as he's in prison in Rome. And so now he's going to thank them for their gift in a manner fitting for an apostle. He thanks them by embodying that ethic and that doctrine that he put forth in the rest of this letter up to this point, with his confidence, his joy, and contentment in spite of his chains. So Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul here begins 
thanking the Philippians for this gift they supplied to him. Again, Paul speaks of rejoicing, but now it's in the past sense, past tense. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly for your gift. So Paul is practicing what he preaches. He's serving as an example for them to imitate. Paul rejoices and rejoices greatly. He's jubilant. He celebrates. If it was our time, you might say, I pumped my fist. Might pumped his fist. It was a fist pump. And then he folded his hands and bowed his head. He's excited about it. He's rejoicing. The Philippians' care for Paul had flourished again. That word for flourish is a word having to do with plants, and it means to bloom again. So just like we've seen in these last few weeks out there, those flowering crab trees that blossom every spring, they go dormant over the winter, they wait a long time, they store up all those blossoms and leaves in that bud, and then when it's the right time, they burst out, and you can tell that they're just waiting to burst forth with the anticipation of warmer weather. So in that way, Paul says the Philippians' care for him has blossomed again. And Paul is quick to say, I know it's not that you didn't care, but you lacked opportunity. Paul has no doubt they had concern for him, but it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right season. They weren't able to send him help at that time. So just as a flowering tree like that won't send out its bud and blossoms and leaves in the wintertime because it'd probably kill the tree, it's not the time for blossoms. So Paul says, they waited until an opportune time. In due season, that blossom comes forth, and no sooner. So we should be like the Philippians, and like one of those trees that's eager to blossom and bloom at that right time, when it's the right season. It's not always the right time to give gifts. We don't always have the ability, but at that right time, we should be eager to burst forth in good works that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So we should not be stingy, but zealous to do these good works, just as those trees are eager to burst in the spring, and they deck all that formerly barren ground and woods with draping and every color. And this text also demonstrates that sometimes people do care about you even if you don't hear from them or receive a gift from them. Sometimes they have other things that demand their immediate attention. It doesn't mean they don't care. Maybe Paul could have been bitter, he could have been cynical that it's been so long since he received anything from them. Might have thought, well, I guess they don't care that I'm in prison here. It's been several years since their last help. But Paul is generous in spirit, and he rejoices greatly that at last they revive their concern for him. So Paul here is thankful for what he has. He's not covetous in spirit. And we should follow that example. Verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need. So what is Paul talking about here? As I've pointed out numerous times, this is a letter written by a man in prison. He's wearing chains, and he's under guard. He rejoices greatly in the Philippians' care for his needs, but he says, not that I speak in regard to need. Now really, if, if anybody's needy, it's Paul. Do you think they 
fed him well while he was in prison. And to think that he himself could be fed to the lions any day. He was waiting trial before that madman Nero, the Caesar at the time. And he says he's not in need as he's chained up and under guard. How can Paul say something like that? Paul gives us the reason. He says, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Well, Christian, have you learned in whatever state you are in to be content? Paul says he has learned to be content in whatever state. He's come to know by experience how to be content. He says in verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So Paul knows how to be humbled, to be put in a state of humiliation. In Philippi itself, he was stripped of his clothes and he was beaten with wooden rods by the magistrates. He was put in an inner dungeon and his feet were clamped in the stocks. And this was all after he had cast out a demon from a slave girl. And he ruined her owner's chance of profit by her. Now, if he's like me, I'd be expecting congratulations after I did something like that. Good job! You just cast out a demon from a girl. Thank you. You did a good work. Be expecting a slap on the back. But instead he gets thrown into prison. But God does what it takes to keep us humble in the Christian life. Paul says God gave him a thorn in his flesh so that he would stay humble and he wouldn't be puffed up in pride after God gave him revelations of heaven. So Paul is not living a triumphal life. We are more than conquerors through Christ, but we don't conquer in the way worldly armies conquer. We bring life and health and peace through suffering while doing good. Don't expect the world to love you for doing good. Christ was crucified for doing good. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, he was beaten with rods three times, five times the 39 lashes, stoned twice, shipwrecked, lost in the deep a day and a night, in peril everywhere, sleepless often, hunger and thirst, in cold and nakedness. Just as Christ was humbled to the point of death, even the death of his cross, so his followers should expect the same kind of humiliation at times in this life. But Paul says he also knows how to abound. He's known times of feasting and fellowship, times of celebration and progress, achievement. He's seen the fruit of his labor. He's seen life and peace sprout out where there was death, in desolation, he's seen the gospel going out and reaching people, life springing up. He's seen times without trouble, times with plenty of food and provision, clothing and shelter. The times when he had well, well much more than he ever needed. He's experienced one end of the spectrum to the other. In everywhere and in all things, whether he's Full or hungry, whether he has all the requirements he needs or not, abounding 
or suffering need, he says he has learned the secret, whatever the circumstances. And what is Paul's secret? Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that verse, verse 13, is a very popular verse right now out there in our country. It has been for a while. Now, in a time when few people know the difference between King Saul and King David, a time when people think it might as well have been Adam and Steve in the garden, as, or Eve and, and Adam, as well as Adam and Eve, and Ruth is only the name of a good-looking girl, the last name of this good-looking girl who played baseball last century, not the mother of David's grandfather. Track stars put it on their Instagram accounts, and base- basketball players write it on their shoes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right. Well, this is a case of the importance of understanding Scripture in context. After everything I've just described about Paul's situation, was Paul talking about dunking a basketball in this text? Was he talking about breaking Olympic records in the 100-meter dash? Paul was happy just to make it through the day. Paul was broken. He said in his body he was filling up the afflictions that were lacking for the sake of Christ's body. Not that he was atoning for sin, but he was suffering to gather in the elect, to build up the church and to build them up for maturity for the sake of Christ. We have a problem in this country. This nation doesn't know the Bible and it doesn't know God. And so many read the Bible in these little snippets. And they think it's about them having their wildest dreams come true. It's about God being this cosmic, feel-good genie. Rub my lamp, get three wishes. Or like Buddha, you rub his belly and he gives you good luck and wealth and prosperity. Anytime you need some therapy, God is there to help you, give you a little counseling, help you through. When things get tough, you got God to lean on. At least if you make sure you try your best to follow his little rules. God wants the best for you, and if you mess it up, it's okay. He's there for you. He's there for you when you need him. He's not there when you don't. You can ignore him. So go chase your dreams. Shoot for the moon. God is there to help you get what you want in life. He's like that little paper clip that always popped up in Microsoft Word. He pops up sometimes when you don't want him there. You wish he'd go away, but you're sure glad he's there when you need him. He's like a fairy godmother. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, how do you read that verse, just ignore the context, and conclude that that verse means God is a tool for me to get whatever I want. 
God isn't a gumball machine. Put the quarter in. Get the gumball out. He's not a lemonade vendor. He's not this cosmic self-help genie. He's not Buddha or a maintenance man. He's not an insurance plan. He's the Lord Almighty. Isaiah 48, 11 says, this is God speaking. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Paul says in Acts 17, God that made the world and all things therein, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God's purpose in creating the universe is not to give men all the things they ever wanted or ever imagined they wanted to have. He has not made the world and everything in it so you can fulfill every last desire of your heart. You exist for him, not him for you. This world and everything in it is about God. It's about exalting Christ. He created the world for himself. And that is not vain for God to do so. Now, if, if I as a man expected everyone, commanded everyone to glorify me, to look at me, everyone praise me, find all your hope and joy and peace in me, I would be vain. But when God, Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, directs us to find our hope and happiness and peace and joy and to glory in he himself, that is good and perfect and just. Because he's the only one who can satisfy our souls. It's not vain. It's perfectly natural for God to do so. But it is contrary to nature and disordered for creatures to worship created things. Paul is not on a personal quest to accomplish his wildest carnal dreams. Paul is on a mission. He has this redeemed dream. He has a new dream, a renewed vision to live out those good works that God prepared for him before time began. That God would get the glory, do his name. So Paul's passion is God's glory and not the glory of men, not the praises of men. His glory and joy is seeing faith in other believers as he goes and declares the gospel to them. Sees life where there was death. Sees God getting more glory for himself. He's not after a perishing medal. He's not after a crown or cash. This verse isn't about God helping you dunk a basketball if you really believe and try your best. This isn't about how everything in life is going to go well for you if you have enough faith in God. This verse is about contentment. 
This verse is about peace in the midst of calamity and a heart, having a heart that is still and stayed on God, even in prosperity. This is about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and letting all those other things be added to you. That God is your pearl of great price. That no matter what happens, no matter how much the world shakes, how much prosperity comes to you, how much calamity, how many trials, you're content, satisfied in God. You continue faithfully. You remain a Christian, a disciple of Christ. Those weeds don't come in from the world and choke out that word that God sowed in your heart through the gospel. Contentment in hell or high water, or bumper crop, or bounty. No matter what, content in Christ. God has not promised he will give you everything that you imagine you might ever want. Not everything you might have thought would be good for yourself to get. He doesn't promise everything you want if you have enough faith. He promises all that you need for your own ultimate good and for his glory until he decides your time on earth is done. And it's not that God is a killjoy or a buzzkill or a menace. He's not a curmudgeon, not wanting you to enjoy life. It's not that he's restricted in his love or that his heart is narrow. It's the opposite. God is a loving father. And he would not have you satisfied with lesser things. He does want what's best for his children. But I don't need to tell you that children don't always want what's best for them. They would eat candy all the time if they could. <laughs> They'd stay home from school. They wouldn't share anything with their siblings. They would fight all the time, bicker back and forth. Scripture says our earthly parents disciplined us as seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Hebrews 12:5 says, My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. So we've all seen children who do not receive discipline. Almost invariably, they don't get that discipline and correction and instruction. They don't get those spankings that they're supposed to get, according to God's word. Spare the rod, spoil the child, is the old proverb. Almost invariably, those children, they turn into spoiled brats. They think everything is about them. They act like kings and queens. They make these demands, do this for me, do that for me. I expect this. This wasn't how I wanted it. Paul has suffered as a Christian. He's been humiliated. And in those times, God treated him as a son. It was the Lord's discipline. Paul abounded. Paul had plenty. 
God was treating him as a son, showing goodness to him. So whether Paul abounded or suffered in need, he found contentment. He could do all things. He had the strength to meet every challenge, every circumstance, every trial, whatever it was. He could do all things for the sake of the gospel. He could do it all in Christ who strengthened him. So this isn't a self-help verse. It's not to speak badly of having dreams or trying to make the most of this life that we have, trying to achieve great things. We should pursue excellence as Christians. That's not a bad thing. If you're gifted, be the best basketball player you can be. Be the best track athlete you can be. That's not wrong, and it's not to speak badly of those things. But it is to speak badly of exchanging the glory of God for idols. To speak badly of making God your belly. Some disordered passion, your glory and joy. Seeking the praises of men for its own sake. Wanting earthly glory. And doing that all. And passing it off as doing it in the name of God, or posing as doing it for God, or by his help. When that God you're calling on is really just your good luck charm, a little totem, a little Buddha whose belly you rub in order to get what you want. God is not your pet, he's not a glorified life coach. We were made for the glory of God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that fills them. Don't be satisfied with lesser things. Don't exchange the glory of the immortal God for idols. And if in your striving for those goals, to achieve those things, to the glory of God, if you fall short, Don't think God doesn't love you. Don't think God was not strong enough to help you. Don't think it was necessarily that you didn't have enough faith. Sometimes God has bigger and better plans than you have or than you could even imagine. If Christ is yours by faith, then you can have strength to fail and yet have contentment. God never promised to supply everything you want in life. He has promised everything you need in Christ, no matter what comes. Contentment is a state of being satisfied with what you have. It's remaining at peace, calm, centered, and changing circumstances. Think of an evergreen tree in the middle of a field. Through the winter, through the fall, and the changing leaves, and the spring and melting snow, it stays green. All year long. It doesn't change. Whatever life throws at you, don't grumble, don't dispute. But it's not easy to have contentment. And yet, God charges us to be content like Paul. If God doesn't give you that house that you always wanted, does that mean he doesn't love you? If your car breaks down on the highway, or you get in an accident, you smash up your new truck or SUV, 
Is God punishing you? Is he getting vengeance on you? If you fall over and you break your leg, you break your arm, is God punishing you? When bad things happen, is God getting vengeance for sins? It's funny how whenever something bad happens, people are quick to blame it on God. They curse immediately. Last summer I was working in a basement in new construction. I had co-workers who were all unbelievers. And we're in this basement leveling out the gravel down there to prepare for pouring. And my co-worker cursed God. There was some pipe in the wrong place that made his job harder. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. I told him, don't blame God for that. He didn't have anything to do with that. And he said, are you kidding me? God has everything to do with that. Now, what I meant was that if something's done wrong, God didn't do that. God is not the author of evil or error, and he's not the one to blame. The person who did that is responsible for that. But he, an unbeliever, who's hardly been to church, anything like that, understood, probably just by natural revelation, that God causes all things that come about in his sovereign will, in his providence, So we're so quick, so many are so quick to curse God. But when something good happens, how many people turn to say a prayer of thanks to God? It's very rare. Men have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and that lie is from Eden, from the beginning. That lie is that God is not good, that he does not want for us happiness, beyond our wildest imagination, what you could imagine or think. That he's not loving, he's stingy, he's untrustworthy. Why doesn't God stop this war in Ukraine? Why doesn't God end Biden's presidency? He can't even tie his shoes. Why this inflation? Why this chaos at the border? Why the sexual revolution? Why all of this human trafficking? Why is Target this month soliciting transsexual clothing in their stores? Why all this COVID nonsense? Why so much pain and childbearing, so much anguish and labor, getting bread by the sweat of your brow day in and day out? Why all this domestic violence, children with no fathers, no discipline, public schools teaching perversion. Why are there so few attending church? Why so few seeking God? Why all this darkness and despair, suicide on the rise, drug abuse, meth, cocaine? Is God love? Is God a loving Father? Another question we could ask is, why all this abundance? Why so much food? Why so much order in this dark world? Why so many good laws? Why all this good technology that has expanded life expectancy 
and help so many children live who are born prematurely and born with other misfortunes, diseases? Why so many good times with family and friends? Why so much clean water to drink? Why the gift of children, watching them learn and play and grow? Why this gift of God's word to us? Why this lamp shining in a dark place? What more could God give us than he already has? Do you lack contentment in your circumstances in this present time? Is your soul restless? What more could God do for you? What more could he do to show his love for you, a sinner? What more could he do for rebels, for the weary, for the exhausted soul, with no hope and without God in the world? What more could he do for those who have turned their back on him, despised him in all of his promises, we've lived our lives for small pleasures, for drink and smoke, gossip and slander and cheating, for all these fleeting pleasures, vain glories, a Super Bowl trophy, fame, fortune. Christ is crucified for sinners like you and me. The Father gave his Son. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are we supposed to learn from this text how great Paul was, how great of an example he was? Surely he's a man to imitate. He rejoices in trial. He mentions no need in prison. He's not grumbling. He doesn't dispute. He doesn't complain. Think about the things he could have been writing in this letter. Rats, awful food, a constant drip from the ceiling. Paul's been low. He's been high. He's content. And he's not thumping his chest. He's not saying, look at what I've achieved. He says... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This isn't the power of positive thinking. This isn't working up enough willpower to do what God commands. Paul strengthens himself in the Lord his God, and it's not Paul's great faith that gives him power. It's the great God whom he puts his faith in that gives him power. It's not the one who believes. It's the one you believe in. That's where you get your strength. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Paul writes, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is able to save, but more than that, he is willing and he offered up Christ as a demonstration of his love. 
His son was slain so that whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you're from, you can have life in him. It's not just for this person, that person, that handsome guy over there, that gal over there driving the Hummer or the Mercedes. It's for everyone. God does not show partiality. Everyone who will believe, whosoever will, may come. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone's hungry, let him come and be satisfied. But not everyone will. Don't be deceived. Justice is coming. Imagine a father spending months working on this handmade sled for his child at Christmas. He puts a lot of work into it, a lot of thought into it. He thinks, this is exactly what my son will want for Christmas. He gets to Christmas morning, that son opens up that present in front of his dad, and he rolls his eyes, and he goes back to watching TV. It's because God is love that he must carry out justice on evil. There's a story of a man whose son went off to war overseas. They said their goodbyes. The pastor in the church prayed. They sent him off. He saw the front lines. He saw the heat of battle. The battle was fierce. And one day, the phone rang, and his family got that fateful call. They said their son had fought honorably, but he died. He had died in war. And his father was angry, and he went to that pastor. And he said to him, Pastor, you talk a lot about God. Where was God when my son died? And that pastor was wise and gentle. And he responded, I suppose the same place he was when his own son died. God has entered into our suffering. He's not above the fray. He's gotten blood on his own clothes. He's gotten dirt under his own nails. He's had those nails through his own wrists. He's got his own skin in the game. He was nailed to a Roman cross, that lowest of the low, death, like a criminal. They spit in his face. Put a crown of thorns on his head. Said, prophesy to us, Christ, tell us who struck you. He said, Hail, King of the Jews. He did a mock coronation ceremony. God the Son died so that you and all who believe in him may have life. The Father gave his Son. We have a loving Father. Receive Christ, receive all that you need in him. By faith. Faith alone. It's not by works. It's a gift of God. 
so that no one can boast. Receive Christ's death. Receive his life. Receive everything that he's done. Charged to your account. As if you'd done it yourself. Though none of us can. None of us ever will. Believe in Christ. Find contentment in the midst of chaos. Find grace to live free and godly no matter what happens, no matter what occurs, whether in feast or in famine. Find rest for your soul. Find life in the midst of chaos and despair. Find Christ himself, Christ, the fullness of the Godhead in him, clothed in everything you could ever ask or think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that even while we were yet sinners, and help us to save ourselves, help us to do any good. It's not as if we could climb a ladder to attain to your glory. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But you laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. So I pray that you would grant all of us grace to believe that love that you have shown for us on the cross of Calvary. That you are a loving Father. That you do delight to give good gifts to your children. And you are to be trusted. And help us in him, in Christ, to find contentment in every season of life and even in death. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.